Do you mind if I preach this morning? I, uh, I just feel inspired this whole weekend having Good Friday and celebrating the fact that Jesus died. When we receive communion, we make a proclamation. And Friday night we were here and we took communion and we proclaimed Jesus died. He died. He was dead. He was in the ground. He was kaput. When you're dead, you're dead. There's no breath. There's no heartbeat. There's no pulse. He was dead. The Roman professionals checked that out. They were good at what they did. They killed people. He was in the ground. Jesus died. Well, I want to tell you today that he rose from the grave. And I want to bring us some, some thoughts on that today. Jesus, no one like him is the title. If you're taking notes, it's in your bulletin there, and I'll have scriptures on the screen. We're parting from our First Corinthians series to dive into the resurrection today. And pra praise God, only part of it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's exhaustive. For many years, I've been a pastor uh, in Abundant Life nearly 28 years now, and uh, past youth pastor a good five years before that. And so preaching on the resurrection has become a multiple amount of ways, different times through different facets. Uh, one of my favorite things, when I was a youth pastor in Oregon, we, we lived in this little town called Winston. Anybody know where Winston is? It's right outside of um, uh, Roseburg, just right there between Roseburg and the coast, kind of as you go toward Coos Bay, and um, it was a small town, but one of the things that's right there is the wildlife safari. Anybody been to the wildlife safari? Okay, it's called the Banana Belt of Oregon. It stays warm there a lot of the year. It's very, very warm weather, uh, consistent at least with being in the northwest, it's warm in comparison. And we would have an Easter sunrise service there at the safari, and they would open up that little amphitheater, and we would go, and as we were singing, holy are you Lord God almighty, you could hear the lions roaring in the back. Oh, it was just the coolest thing. Yeah, and elephants, and uh, it was just cool. But it was feeding time for them, so I'm glad they were a ways away. But it was, a, it was a cool thing. But Jesus is risen from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus is among the uh, four most uh, infamous things throughout history that we have. The birth of Christ, the life of Christ, um, of course, being among them, and the crucifixion of Jesus, all those four as well. But Jesus is the most significant person in the history of the world. Uh, more so than anybody who's ever lived, more, things, uh, more songs have been sung about him and more paintings painted about him, more books have been written about him than any other figure throughout history. Uh, on this day, this Easter Sunday or this weekend, uh, a few billion people will be remembering the fact that he rose from the grave and that he died, but that he rose from the grave. And so this Sunday, um, this weekend is a very special day as you unite with many believers around the world celebrating the fact that your Jesus has risen from the grave. There's no one who has transformed the world like Jesus. He has transformed everything. We honor his birth this on Christmas. We On Easter, we celebrate his resurrection. We remember and rejoice that he rose from the grave, and our calendar is based upon his very life. On uh, it was B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That's what it means. And so the story of Jesus is a big story. It's throughout the human condition. It's woven throughout history. And even though we're separated by more than 2,000 years and attempts to crush those who carried the message um, all throughout history, yet he is still alive. He is still alive. 
on the day that Jesus was crucified, he was forced to carry his cross up this hill. This hill on the picture here is called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And if you can see in there, you can kind of see the outline of a skull, can't you? It looks that same way today, and it is still there. The idea of, of going up this hill meant certain death. As Jesus bore his cross, and the thieves as well with him, they carried their crosses up this hill, and it was the place of death, the place of the skull. When people die, we memorialize them, right? We set up a headstone or a monument. When someone famous dies, we memorialize their grave. Right here in Seattle is our is Bruce Lee. Is I don't I don't know how to do that, but you know I don't know. Um, nonetheless, Bruce Lee is memorialized right here in Seattle. You can go and you can see his grave in Renton. Um, Kurt Cobain. Uh, no, not Kurt Cobain, but um, Jimi Hendrix is buried. Uh, Jimmy, if you go to Renton, you can see his grave there. There's a memorial. Kurt Cobain was born in Aberdeen. In Aberdeen, not that long ago, was like the drug capital of the whole west area, west of the Mississippi, something like that, um, until, you know, about 20 years ago. But Kurt Cobain, of course, died of overdose and drugs, uh, as Jimi Hendrix, the stories are so sad, but... When a religious leader dies as well, a grave is enshrined for them. There are four major religions based on a person, not just a system of ideas. One, Judaism, based on Abraham. And here we have a temple. And today, if you visit Hebron, um, you would see an enormous tribute, a memorial, a worship site built over his dead entombed body, uh, supposed, <clears throat> here in, in Hebron. So similarly, Buddhism is the same way. Buddha buried in India, and over his tomb has been erected an enormous place of worship where people pilgrimage every year to go and see. Also, Islam in the Dome of the Rock, you can see the picture here, who is buried in Medina, and his grave is marked with an enormous location of worship. So if you, if you look for Abraham's grave, you'll find it. Um, if you look for Buddha's grave, you'll find it. If you look for Muhammad's grave, you'll find it. You know where Jimi Hendrix is buried, where Bruce Lee is buried. You know where Kurt Cobain is buried. And, and, and Jesus, though, no man knows where his grave is. You know, a friend of mine, a missionary years ago, went um, over to a country where uh, the Buddhas were a big thing, and they had these enormous heads, and he went on a tour and they took him up inside this big, enormous wooden head, and they, they walked around on this scaffold and came down. And he said, you know what, Larry? There's nothing up there. There's nothing up there. I'm so glad that Jesus is alive. Christianity is founded by, by Jesus. And what a curious, though, his tomb is not only enshrined, it's not really known. People think they know where his tomb is. No one has any idea where the most famous man and the history of the world was buried. And this is because he rose from death. He rose from the grave. No one knows exactly where he's buried. They have relations and they have tours you can take that take you to the supposed location. And, and the tourist visit is essentially a museum. It's a place where there is a tomb and, and reside. Someone was buried at, at one time, but today it's empty. And so they take you there to show you the what perhaps was the place, the archaeologists that oversee the site and in fact, don't know. And Jesus likely was not buried there, but they have no idea. Why? Because he rose from the grave. 
There was no need to visit the grave. There's no need to go and put flowers there. There's no need to visit the place. There's no need to go to that site because Jesus is not there. And how do we know this? Because Jesus did so many things. And rather than go this year and dive into the physical, some of the physical evidences of his resurrection, I want to take a look at some of the people evidences of the resurrection. The time of Jesus. Jesus uh, changed some things. He changed ingrained religious culture immediately. And at the time Jesus uh, of Jesus, the Jews began, uh, they had been persecuted for 700 years by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, Persians, and now by the Greeks and Romans. And, and many Jews had been scattered and, as captives to other nations. However, we still see Jews today. We still see them. We don't see Hittites. We don't see Perizzites. We don't see Amorites or Assyrians, Persians, Babylonians. Not really. And all the other people that have been living in and out there, but today we still see the Jewish people. Why? Because these people got captured, all those other ones, by other nations and lost their national identity. And even though the Jews did as well, two major times, they still have a national identity. And why did it happen to the Jews? Why did they maintain this? Because the things that were Jews that made them Jews, the social structures that had been established that gave them a national identity that God had really given them. They were inevitably more important to them than anything else, and they held on to those things and maintained an identity. The Jews would pass down these structures of, of mean, through synagogue meetings and, and through ideals and through teachings to reinforce them every Sabbath. And they, they, would have rit they had rituals to remind them of what God had done. And, and because of all this, the Jewish people remained. They, they didn't, they, they, the Jews, they, it wasn't a fact that there was soon none left. They were still there. Some things that majorly changed. Number one, the first thing is animal sacrifices. Do you realize that not coincidentally, but because of, and right at the time of Jesus' resurrection, that animal sacrifice had stopped? Could you imagine such a powerful tradition that had been among the people? They had been taught since Abraham and Moses that they needed to offer animal sacrifices on a yearly basis to atone for their sins. But all of a sudden, after the death of this Nazarene carpenter, after Jesus died and rose from the grave, people no longer offered sacrifices. This is a big thing. This was something that was in their very makeup, something they believed and taught and understood. And they understood it this way. It was a powerful equation because it came way back from Adam. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned, the Bible says that they knew they were naked and they needed a covering. So God killed animals. God shed the first blood, not Rambo. God shed the first blood. He made clothes out of the skins of animals for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. This Abrahamic covenant represented the covering, and the Noahic covenant as well, but nonetheless, this covenant was meant as the sacrifice was established through Abraham to represent the spilling of blood that God spilled, the shedding, the killing of the lamb, the, the sacrifices that were offered in blood represented what God had done in covering their nakedness. They knew what it represented. They knew what it meant. And they knew that it was only a symbol. It couldn't really save them. It was a symbol of what God had done. 
So these people, all of a sudden, this powerful tradition, these Jews were like clockwork. Their teachings were like clockwork. They had these laws. They had to obey. They did them all the time, and every single one of them they obeyed until Jesus rose from the grave. There was such a massive disruption in that time, in that moment, because of the resurrection of Jesus and the commotion and chaos that he caused because he became, the Bible says, the ultimate sacrifice. That he spilled his blood once for all, for all sin, atoning all mankind. Psalm 22, God says he prepared a body for Jesus, the Son, that he would come into the body and that body would be the blood sacrifice. The second thing that changed was the keeping of the law. The Jews emphasized obeying laws that God had entrusted through Moses. And in their eyes, this is what separated them from all other pagan nations. And, and, and however, in a short amount of time after Jesus' death, Jews were beginning to say that you don't become an upstanding member of their community by merely keeping the laws of Moses. Another thing that changed, which was very radical, was the keeping of the Sabbath. Now, the principle of a day of rest is still in our lives, amen? It's still a good thing. In fact, we've taught on it quite extensively. God had a reason for the Sabbath. In fact, scriptures tells us that God um, worked six days in creating everything. On the seventh, he rested. And that word there, nephesh, means that God didn't like lay down and take a nap, but he breathed in. So the whole time God is speaking, creation is happening on the seventh day, he refreshed himself. In other words, that's what that word means. And the Jews... They scrupulously kept the Sabbath every Saturday, the seventh day of the week, and, and not, going, not doing anything except religious devotion every Saturday. And this guaranteed salvation of their family. This was something very important. They, they kept the Sabbath. They couldn't walk so far. They couldn't carry anything. They couldn't do any work. And, but after Jesus, this Nazarene carpenter, the Christ whom Jesus fulfilled all messianic prophecies concerning. He was God. He is God. And this 1,500-year tradition came to a halt. Now, it abruptly changed. These Christians, now they worship on Sunday. We worship on Sundays, the first day of the week. That's what the Bible says. The early church met on the first day of the week, Sunday. They broke bread, fellowship, the ministry of the word, sang hymns, spiritual songs. Well, that's what we did today, amen. Hallelujah. Jesus is alive, you know, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm telling you, people can get act crazy and stupid and foolish over a Seahawks game. Come on now, the psalmist was not stupid. Yeah, he was glad that God had saved him, amen? If you're not excited about that, you must be dead, all right? You know, praise God, God is good. Also, this other thing is monotheism. They believed in monotheism, only one God. The Bible says the Lord God, he is one. Uh, Christians teach a form of monotheism from that text in Scripture that we proclaim that Father, Son, and Spirit are God in one. This radically changes the, a different concept from what the Jews believe. We find this teaching consistent with all Scripture. If you ever go to a oneness church or you've ever been in a, there's a lot of Pentecostal uh, Jesus-only type churches in our culture today where the Holy Spirit is only God's helper, he's not God. There's uh, other teachings that remove the, the significance of the Father and the Son are, are together, so there's only <coughs> one God in that respect. And though 
the Trinity is not something, um, Francis Assisi said the same thing. I mean, um, the concept of the Trinity is beautiful woven throughout, and it's hard to explain. You try to explain it, you'll blow your mind. In essence, well, I'm misquoting him, but in essence, that's what he says. You can't wrap your brain around it. And yet we see the, the, the significance of eternity in the Father and the power of his creative power and miracles. We see the significance of the eternity of Jesus and eternity past and eternity future and the powers of divine nature in Jesus. We see the significance of the eternity past in Scripture of the Holy Spirit who has been from before the foundations of the world as Jesus was through the eternity future. Well, he will be with the church forever. So we have this idea that the, the Jews began this worship of Jesus as God within the first decade of Christianity. In the first decade, Jesus is God and we begin to worship him. Another thought I don't think I have on there, but is this idea of Jesus as a religious, as a leader, a president, Messiah. These, these Christians pictured that Messiah as someone who suffered and died for their sins of the world, whereas Jews had been trained that the Messiah was going to come as some strong military leader, a political leader perhaps, who would destroy their enemies. And how could you possibly explain within a short time they released that expectation? Now it's prevalent more reviving today a little bit in our culture where the Jews, you know, they're still looking for the Messiah. They, all of these things changed in their culture, in their ingrained systems, in their synagogues, in their teachings, overnight. What a powerful evidence of, of the awesomeness of the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was the Christ. You know, not only did Jesus change things for them, Jesus changes things today. The good news is that he's not dead, he is alive. And that means a lot because a God who rose from the grave father pulled him out and even the resurrected body gives us hope that this old body's going to be resurrected aren't you glad for that anyway come on some of you are hobbling along this morning God, I said, hey good morning pastor I, oh man i'm just like oh i don't want to get out of bed today my back and my own come on we know right we're human we want that new body i want that new body praise god Jesus changed the world today, number one, because he is God. John 10, 30 says, as the Father, uh, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of those things, replied the Jews. But for blasphemy, you, a mere man, claim to be God. Many believe today um, and have been told that Jesus never said he was God, but Jesus emphatically said God, oh, he was God over and over again. And, and some of you may have been taught that Jesus did not consider himself to be God, but that's just not the truth. And it's a myth and a legend. It's a fairy tale. It's a folklore. It's not true. It never has been part of Scripture <clears throat> for generations. But his followers, um, some of the, the false followers and Gnosticism and other things, they denied this power. It's a fanciful story of Jesus, was, Christ was God, and it's just not true. And the reason we believe that Jesus Christ is the only God is because Jesus himself repeatedly and emphatically, unapologetically, openly, publicly declared himself to be God. And right here he does. In fact, they made him so ticked off that they wanted to stone him. 
Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is the only true God. And it is only through him that we have salvation. It is by the grace of God alone. There is no other name under heaven that we can be saved except the name of Jesus. I don't care how much you believe in him. I don't care how much you believe in that other system or other ideology. The only name is the Jesus. Muhammad, are you kidding? He came up with a fictitious story years after Jesus came about. Anybody could do that. Joseph Smith, give me a break. Cast some stones in a hat and twirl your face around. Get high on something and proclaim that you know something better. Come on, these are what your Mormon friends are believing. Don't make fun of them. Just know that these things are true. Jesus was and is prophesied about throughout Scripture and existed. He lived and died as a man and came to us as God. He is God eternal, God forevermore, and God that will be forever. Buddha never said he was God. Krishna never. We haven't forgot about the Harry Krishnas, have you? Have we? Remember at airports, they give you the flowers, you know, and all dressed in. Oh, man, they were creepy people, right? They're just nutcases. I'm boldly going to say that Krishnas are nutcases. Prove me wrong. Confucius never said he was God. Muhammad never made the claim. No other major religious founder has ever made the claim. So Jesus stands alone. There's no one like him. And friends, this statement, this truth claim, is true or it is false. It can only be true or it can only be false. There's no middle ground. We can't kind of like merge Jesus in our own little kaleidoscope of other things. There's only Jesus, the one and only. And if it is false, Jesus is the most damnable liar that there ever has been in the history of the world. And he's telling us to pray to him, to confess to him, to trust him, to follow him, to give our lives to him, to, to give our dollars to him, to, to give our deeds to him, to give our days to him, to give every minute to him. And if he's not God, then who else could he be? Then he is the most despicable, deceitful person and the biggest trick that's ever been played on all of mankind. This is the voice in our culture of the Bill Mars, right? It was just a folklore. Even our most trusted conservative heroes, like Ben Shapiro, were say that because there was all of these other people trying to be like Jesus during the time, that Jesus was simply a story that came out of all of that. But it couldn't have been. The eyewitnesses that made their accounts were too close to the historical account. Less than 30 years for John. I mean, remarkable. Jesus changes the world today because he's God, and secondly, he forgives sin. Mark 2, 5, Scripture says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Uh-oh. He's about to step in, but he stepped in it. Now they're going to let him know. He forgave sin. So verse 6, now some of the teachers that were sitting there and they think unto themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So every time we sin against people, we need their forgiveness, don't we? You know what it's like to be in a relationship with someone or have lied to somebody or hurt somebody and the, the relationship is strained. There's there's no peace. There's no trust. Uh, a son to his father or a daughter to her mother or 
when you lie, you can't trust. And so you're on guard, and you don't want to extend any more affection. You don't want to give any more love. You don't want to console the person because they hurt you. They hurt you bad. And I don't think there's any other hurt that parents know this than your son or daughter as they get older, right? It's the worst kind of hurt. Hurt between spouses is hurtful. These are the pains of life that are the deepest. They're the most profound. We feel them more sincerely. We have someone that doesn't care about us or show affection toward us, and we're puzzled because we love them so much, and we're like, what is wrong with this person? They don't seem to care. And you know what it's like when you get forgiveness, and you, you know forgiveness means you're taking a step to change the relationship, aren't you? You can come and say, you know, I'm so sorry that I've been behaving this way. I, I apologize. I know that I have stepped out of bounds here, and I desperately need your forgiveness. It's the first step to re restoration. There's a lot of people that hold grudges, and then they make you pay somehow. They're going to continue to make you pay. If you, unless you pay me back for the wrong you've done against me, I cannot forgive you. And religions do this as well. They, they take your regrets, your guilt, and capitalize on them by making you work for their grace. Listen to me, friends. This is every other religious system on the planet besides Jesus. Every other religious system in the world makes you pay your penance or work toward your salvation by becoming better yourself so that you can earn back that trust. You know what? Jesus is different. You know how he's different? Because he went to that cross. And let me tell you, friends, that's the most brutal, most profound thing that has ever been done. Because Jesus recognized your and my wrong against him. He knew that we sinned against him. He knew that we were ugly against him and that we had no regard for him whatsoever. Unlike you do your parent or your friend or your brother or sister and we hold these grudges, Jesus knew we had a grudge. Jesus knew we were angry. The Bible says while we were still hating him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, that kind of grace, that kind of love, man, that's just unexpected. It's, it's unfathomable. It's indescribable. It's, it's, it's beyond my comprehension. Why would anyone do that, knowing how much that I hate him, knowing how much that I've sinned against him, knowing how much I'm committed to stay in my lane? I don't care what anybody says. I'm rejecting all authorities. I'm rejecting Jesus. I'm pushing him aside. And yet Jesus looks at you and I and he says, I don't care what you did. I don't care how you're feeling about me. I don't care what awful things you can say about me. I'm going to the cross for you. I'm taking your sin, your guilt, your shame, your pain, and I'm hanging on a cruel cross, beaten, pierced, naked, shameful, in sin, bearing it on myself for your place. Every other religious system in the world says you have to get better. You have to make yourself better. And Jesus invites by grace and he says, come to me with your heavy burdens. Come to me with your pain and your weight of your guilt and I will give you rest. I have taken your burden. This is good news. That's why we call it the good news. This is good news. Hallelujah. I wish I could have said all that better, but man, it's good news. You can shape your own words. If you got better words, write them down. But that was as good as just about I can do. 
Jesus also changes the world today because he is the only way to heaven. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember, the, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you, uh, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is inclusive here, or exclusive. He's very exclusive here. In the fact that he says, I am the only way. There's no other way to heaven. Acts chapter, remember when Peter preached? There's no other way, no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved, the name of Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He's exclusive that way. And, and, and I want to be honest. I, I, I don't want to be dishonest with you. Not all religions save. I don't care what Oprah says. This idea of universalism, many paths to God, is the cultural religious thinking of our, of our day. And even in atheism, atheism is the biggest religion, a growing religion in the world, I should say. And not all paths lead to eternal life. Not all gods or goddesses have the one true God. Jesus is exclusive among them. It's in today's idea in Seattle, this is unpopular, especially we live in the most marginalized and unchurched third most unchurched state in the entire country and this is very unpopular but I, I can't be a liar I have to tell you the truth I stand before you and I want to give I'm going to give every account for every word that I speak to you and I got to tell you the truth there is no salvation there is no forgiveness of sin there is no eternal life there is no reconciliation with God apart from relationship with Jesus Christ that's the bottom line and we believe it he said it he says right here I am the way and then he comes and he says, to the Father, through me. Not only is Jesus exclusive, there is only one way. He's very inclusive. And he invites all other, all people, everybody, no matter your thinking, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter the, the, the brown shade of your skin, the light brown, the tan, or the dark brown color of your skin, Jesus invites you, no matter how old you are, Praise God for that. Hallelujah, as I get older. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you saved me when I'm old. Thank you, with the Lord, that you saved me when I'm no matter how young you are. No matter what religion you have participated in in the past. No matter what type of thinking you've been ingrained with. Whether you've been an atheist, agnostic, or just ignorant of these things. Jesus invites all of us. The, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's equal access. No one has granted access just because they've been a Christian for 50 years and someone, you know what, you walk straight, straight to the front of the line. Everybody. The door is open. It's just, it is exclusive, but it is inclusive. There is one door. It, it is exclusive. That way. His name is Jesus, but it's inclusive. Everyone is welcome to walk through the door. Everyone is invited to walk through the door. All genders genders too, all languages, all nations, all tongues, all tribes, all people, from all times, from all places, are all welcome to faith in Christ. He is the only way to heaven. It doesn't matter what kind of sexual sins we've gone through. It doesn't matter what sexual identity we place on ourselves or what we claim as our gender. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. Jesus changes the world today, another thing, because he rose from the grave. 
Mark chapter 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus' vindication is his resurrection. Jesus kept saying, I am God. And they said, we're struggling and straining to believe you. We're having a hard time with this. And Jesus says, well, just wait and see then. You know, just, just hang out for a while. That's what he says here. You know, just, 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 just hang on with me for a little longer. You know, you'll, you'll see. It, it, don't worry about it. And, the res and Jesus' resurrection is his vindication. The resurrection of Jesus proves everything that he said. He says everything and makes all these claims, and it's all tied up into the fact of this massive power that's going to come and raise a dead person to life. After being dead for three days, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He died. Yes, he did. He was arrested. He was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was stripped naked. He was flogged. The flesh on his body ripped off his body, hung like ribbons. He, he had nails driven through the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body. Do you realize that? His hands and his feet. Jesus died on the cross. A Roman, a Roman professional executioner was there, and he made sure and declared Jesus dead. He was responsible for that declaration. It was his job to ensure he was dead. They put a spear through his side so far that it pierced his heart sack and blood and water flowed. A sign of that happening, of, of a broken heart. And so Jesus died. The blood flowed and water from his side. Jesus was wrapped in upwards to a hundred pounds of linen burial cloths and spices. Now I'd like to see someone get wrapped up in a hundred pounds of linen burial cloths. That would be pretty interesting. I mean, I've seen the great Houdini out of a straitjacket, right? But that, now that's something. Jesus' body was laid in a tomb hewn out of a rock. And a stone was put in front of it, placed in front of the opening. The seal by the Romans was put there in a guard set to make sure no one would tamper with it. It was insured with its safekeeping. Jesus was dead. Just dead. He was gone. Then three days later, he was alive. And the stone was rolled away. He walked into town. Over the course of 40 years, he, abhorred, he appeared to crowds up to 500 people. He was seen at one time by over 500 people. Women um, who, who were his friends hugged him physically. His disciples, one of whom doubted the resurrect, his resurrection, saw his crucifixion scars, and he fell down on his face and worshipped him as God in that moment. And that's the right response to the risen Savior. That's why we sing songs. That's why we recognize his goodness. And you know what happens when we take that step and we say, Jesus, I believe in you, something happens inside Something happens inside because coming to Jesus and accepting Jesus and believing in Jesus forces me to lay down all of my 
premonition thoughts it, it permits me to or I, I have to humble myself I have to lay aside every preconceived notion that I've had before about every way of thinking that I've ever held on to every religious ideology or every every motivation of my own I have to push it aside I have to lay it aside in order to believe in Jesus I have to push everything aside and let me tell you that's not easy for some people that can be a hard trek because we believed a lot of stuff and we offended a lot of people and it's a lot of humility to come to Christ. It requires us to say, yeah, I, I'm discarding all of what I was. I'm laying down my pride. I'm laying down all my rejections of the past, and I'm stepping into believing in Jesus. He is the only way. He is the only life, and I must have him as Savior. Something happens when you do that. A trigger goes off inside. It's like your heart comes alive. The Holy Spirit rushes into a body, threatening to become a corpse, and you become energized. You become filled with life. You become filled with the Holy Spirit, and the power of God comes into you, and makes you a new person. And you know what? Things begin to look a little different. You begin to love people that you never loved before. You begin to have the ability to show forgiveness and grace where you never had before. All kinds of things happen. It's like a switch gets turned on. The light comes on. All of a sudden there's this beautiful thing that happens inside. The old man is gone. The new is put on. And I'm brand new in Christ. There's nothing left to do but just rejoice. The goodness is that it is all about Jesus. The early church stopped worshiping on a Saturday, which had been their custom. They started worshiping on Sunday. They, they changed all these things. They began receiving communion. They began to remember what Jesus told them about the fruit of the vine, the wine, and the, the bread. To do this in remembrance of me at Passover. And no one visited Jesus' grave. We have no idea where he's buried. He's, he's not there. No one went to visit him. It hasn't become a shrine, although people try to make it a place one. It, it didn't become a holy place of worship or people return to like the Wailing Wall, as is the custom with other dead religious leaders or other famous people. If you want to see Jesus' body, you wouldn't go to the tomb. You would go to the womb. You would begin to read the Bible. You begin to pray. You begin to wait on the Lord. You begin to have fellowship with other believers in the family of God and begin to get energized just by their faith and begin encouraged because of their faith. You begin to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And after 40 days, Jesus ascends back to heaven, and today he's alive. He's well. Today he's king. He's reigning as king and Lord of lords. He is God. He is who he said he was. And he is who scripture says he is. And scripture says a lot that he's the maker of heaven and earth. That he is the beginning and the end. That he is the son of God. That he is the God-man. That he is our humble servant, scripture says. It says he is our good shepherd. The scripture says he is the man of sorrows who bore our sorrow. That he is the prince of all peace. That he's the wonderful counselor. The lion of the tribe of Judah. I like this one. The dragon slayer. Whew. The sinless savior. The resurrection and the life. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That blood sacrifice. He is a sinner's friend. 
He is a great high priest. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by him. You know, this says a lot about his love, that his love is precious. For you, his love is glorious. For you, his love is generous. His love is gracious. His love is matchless. It's not like any other love you can have in this world. His love is priceless. And let me tell you something. He came as a humble servant the first time. And he came in the most humble of surroundings. But the next time he's coming as king. And he's coming to reign. And we want to be ready. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. I've asked us to sing a song to close. But I want us to pray before we do. Would you